Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 212. We are in the week of Parshas Bahar Kesai, and as such, let's begin to start talking about that as we do in fulfilling the directive of the founder of Chassidah's Chabad, Alta Rebbe, as the Rebbe would so often repeat, the Lebe Midditzeit, to live with the times. And when asked to explain what is the living with the time means, means with the parsha that we read in that time, suggesting that every time has its unique energy, and the parsha that we read reveals to us and teaches us the unique energy of that particular time. It's always good to mention this, even though I've discussed it many times, I'm sure everyone is aware of this. Time in Jewish thought, especially in the mystical teachings in Kabbalah and Chassidus, is like a spiral, not like the river of time, where the past is in the back, the end, of the the past is the other, the back end of the river, the present is where we are now, and the future is the upcoming part of the river. But actually, time works more like a spiral, which means that it is a cycle that repeats itself, but in a different axis every year. So we actually go back to the same original point in time when we come to that point in the year. That's why, for example, Rosh Hashanah, we celebrate not just commemorating events that happened back thousands of years ago, but every year Rosh Hashanah is as the Arizal explains, that you're recreating that same energy. That's why birthdays are that significant. Again, not just remembering something that happened, but it's actually recreated and regenerated with a different dimension, as the Alter Rebbe explains with Rosh Hashanah, every year, it's a new, unprecedented energy, but it's on the same plane. So it's a, it's, or it's a different plane, but on the same spiral. So it returns to the spot, but on a different axis or a different plane. So the same thing when we talk about living with the time. So time is invisible, we don't see time. But when we look at a calendar, so a general calendar, a regular secular calendar, is simply a, uh, an imaginary way of counting and measuring time, days or weeks. When it comes to the Hebrew calendar, however, it actually reflects that day one, Sunday, reflects the energy of chesed, and day two, the energy of gvura. As the Zayah says, and the Pesach, it says, it says, So the Zayah asks, means six days God created in heaven and earth. It should have said in six days, during six days, why does it say Shesh is not Be? Because Shesh itself is a creation. Time itself is created. Kol Every day has its function, has its energy. Chesed is Sunday, Monday is Gvura, Teferis is on Tuesday, and so on. Netzach is on Wednesday, Hoyd is on Thursday, Yusayd is Friday, and Malchus is Shabbos. What happens the next Sunday? It goes back in that same spiral and repeats the Chesed, but now in a different dimension, but still Chesed. And the same is true with the weekly cycle. That's the weekly cycle. Then there's the monthly cycle, like with the moon. There's always a new moon, but it's a new month, but this back to the same cycle. The new moon, then there's the full moon in the 15th of the month, the first quarter, the second quarter, the third quarter, and so on. Same thing annually. Annually, the cycle of time that we read once a year, we finish the Pashas, as it is today, the custom. Once upon a time in Israel, there was a time where every three years they ended the Torah reading. But now it's once a year. So when it comes to this week of Bahar there's an energy in the air, a certain energy that flows. And when you read the Parsha, it reveals to us the unique power and energy of this time. So when you derive lessons, applying chsidis, applying 
the Teda Meloshin Hira, Teda directive. People have asked me what the word applying come from. Teda Hira, Hira is application of Teda in our life. Teda Hira Bachaim. In this case, we use Chsidis, the Pnimisa Teda. And applying it, meaning applying it, we figure out what is the energy of this time. And the parasha tells us what that is. Leb Midetzeit. Therefore, it's Leb Midetzeit. We're living with the time. We're living with the parasha that we read in that time. And that means living with the time because you're living with the energy of that particular time. Obviously, the themes in the Teda are universal, meaning they're all year round, they're timeless. And there are many things that are in the Parsha. Let's say in this week's Parsha, you read about Shemitah. So it's not just relevant to this week, it's relevant to the year of Shemitah. But there's still, the, the spiritually speaking and personally speaking, always lessons that are all year round and all the time. But nevertheless, there's a particular focus when you're doing, when you're reading the Pasha that relates to our particular time. So it's not a contradiction that it can be. Just like there are lessons you can learn from Pesach, even Ashvurs or Asukas, but the focus, as the Rebbe says many times, the Shar, the gate through which, the handle through which we understand everything is going through the gate of Pesach when it comes to Pesach. So Bahar Bechukese becomes the channel, the gateway to understanding the energy of this time. So let's talk a few minutes about this introduction is, vital, is relevant to all times, all Parshas, all chapters. But regarding Bahar Bechukese, which of course is the conclusion of the third book of the Teda, the book of Ayikra, the third book of the Teda, Bechukesai, and we combine these two parshas, Chuslaritz, and this week actually, uh, next week I should say, with Yisrael in America and, and outside of Israel will become the same reading of the Teda, because Bahar Bechukesai is read separately there in order to even it out, and we discussed this a few weeks ago, the meaning and significance of that, that it evens out that because they'll be read separately, so next week they will read Bechukesai in Israel, and we will be re- reading uh, we will be, we'll be reading Bahar Bechukesai, and they'll be reading Bechukesai. So that way it'll even itself out, then becomes then comes Bamidbon, Ashfurs, and so on. So Bahar Bechukesai has many different lessons. Let's talk about one of them. I should say that I have discussed this in episode 67, 116, and 117. There's a cross-reference that you can find at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You find all the archives of the 211 previous episodes as well as other resources. This is that's also the place where you can submit any question anonymously, completely anonymously, in the forum there at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. I will also mention, as I mention every week, because people ask me, there's questions we're behind, obviously, because many questions have been coming in. You can't, the faster, at the faster pace, then we can cover them. So every question will be addressed in this particular time. Just bear patiently, and we continue this week with more questions. Okay, I would also mention at this point that this program is made possible by grants and donations and contributions from the public. It's community supported, being, being that it's a free service, work goes into it. So please, gener- gener- please donate generously in helping this program continue and grow and expand at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. It's a great opportunity to dedicate a program in the name of a loved one or a, um, uh, a birthday or other event, significant event, or the memory of someone that has passed on and continued to perpetuate their spirit and legacy in our time. With that in mind, since yesterday was my father's 13th yard site, I will dedicate this program to my their father, Gershon Jacobson, who passed away on the 20th of Ir in Tovshin Samachhe. Okay, so let's now go to Chassidus applied Bahar Bechukesai, 
um, being that we've talked about it in different angles in the past, this is taken from different Maimorim in Chesidus, especially through the lens and the way the Rebbe, Deir Ashvi, explains it for our times. So Bahar B'chukesai, as the Rebbe often focuses on the name of the Pasha, Bahar means Bahar, referring to Bahar Sinai, the Mount Sinai, and B'chukesai, referring to him, B'chukesai Telechu, when you will follow my laws. But both words are interesting because even though they're just one word, but they're the name of the chapter, and the name reveals the entire theme of the chapters. So if we're looking for the energy of each chapter, or here in the case where you combine them together, you can go find specific narratives or specific mitzvahs or specific details in this, each chapter, or you can go to the name and it gives you the overall encompassing theme. Bahar means, Bahar means on the mountain. Which mountain? Sinai. As Rashi says right away, that everything that the Torah was given and even the details were also given by Sinai. That's the focus why it says Bahar Sinai. Is the question because the beginning of the parasha talks about Shemitah. So to teach us that not just the general principles, but every detail was given at Sinai. That's Bahar. Focus on Bahar. So Bechukesei has the question, of course, there's many different ways you can describe mitzvahs. There's, the mitzvahs can be Mishpatim. You could also say or Edis. And this Chukim, Bechukesei refers to the Chukim. Generally speaking, mishpatim are the logical, rational laws. Edis are more the commemorative laws, like Shabbos and holidays. And chukim are the laws that are super-rational, meaning we don't have a human explanation for them, even though they can be explained, but doesn't originate there. And it's essentially something that defies our logic, because that's what God wants. Chassidus explains that all mitzvahs, even the logical ones, are also truly chukim, because even though the Torah the, the manifests them in logical explanations and rational, but at the end of the day, why did God chose that mitzvah and not another? And even rational itself was also chosen by the divine. Same thing with Edis. On the other hand, Chukim, even Chukim have, as Chassidus explains, and the Rambam says, even from Chukim you can learn lessons in, a, in, a, in, a, in Avedis Hashem, in our life and in our, in our uh, existence. But nevertheless, but generally, B'chukesei focuses on the chukim. So what is the significance and lesson to us from these two names and these two chapters? And then, of course, as they combine. So interestingly, Bahar is, a, is usually referred to metaphorically as something that's unmovable. A mountain. Can't move a mountain. On the other hand, in B'chukesei, Telechu. Say halicha, movement. So one of the questions that's asked is seemingly two different contradictory approaches to life. One is, symbolizes and, and represents the unwavering foundations of our lives like mountains that are un, unflexible. Chukesei Telechu is referring to the growth in our lives where we need to grow. Both are necessary. And that's why at times, and this year in Israel, for instance, there are separate parshas because two different types of messages. We'll soon talk about the details within each one of them. But when they come together, they teach us that we, we combine the two. In order to be able to truly grow and move, you need to have a solid foundation that gives you the security upon which you build all movement. Look at a tree. A tree grows and expands in all different directions. But a tree also has very profound and deep roots. The roots are like the bahar, the foundational elements that are unwavering. The roots keep it grounded. And because it's grounded, it has the capacity to grow in so many directions. When a bird is able to fly, which is telechu, the ultimate movement, flying, but the bird also has a nest. It begins with a nest. So even when human beings grow up 
and they spread their wings and are able to grow in so many different directions and use their individuality and their unique skills and blessings, that, and, blessings and, uh, and the resources they were blessed with, it comes after they have the security, especially in early age where we build homes that are an edifice, a bias that is a solid foundation. So you build that security feeling you know you have your hearth that nurtures you. And then that gives you the confidence and the courage to go expand in many directions. Many people ask the question about Judaism, Teir and Mitzvahs, that seemingly it's inflexible, doesn't allow any room for any individuality, for any personal, personal application. This is the mitzvah, this is what you're supposed to do. And everybody's thrown into the same boat, everybody has to do the same mitzvah exactly the same way. Look at davening, you say Shema Yisrael, exactly the same words. So the question is, if we're all, is this a conformist-oriented faith? And what about our individual element to it? Why shouldn't we, when we speak especially during prayer to God, you could say, it's Aved HaShabalev, Ezu HaVed HaShabalev, Zuhit Tefillah. Speaking from my heart, you speak to your heart, from your heart to your Father in heaven. To God, why can't you just say it in your own words? Why do you have to fit it into words that are someone else's words, the Tater's words, David HaMelech's words, and the same thing in a general sense. Mitzvahs are especially specific like this. Where's room for growth? Where's room for movement? Where's room for uh, diversity? Where's room for expansion? And that's why some have made the mistake that in order to do that expansion, you have to compromise the actual mitzvahs, God forbid. So the answer from Baruch Kesey is no. We, both, we need both. And I'll give a good example for this. Example from musical notes. Music everyone agrees, is very expansive. It's not conformist-based. It's free-spirited. And yet, any musical composition is based on musical notes, and there are only that seven or nine musical notes on the scale, and nobody can create a new note. But you can combine them in infinite different ways, and two people can play or sing the same song, and, and one will sound hollow and dead, and the other one will sound alive and vibrant. So it's not about the structure that makes it Free, free spirit, it's how you invest and what you infuse in it. So when we said Shema soul, the Tate is telling us this is words, divine words given to us as tools, like musical notes, divine musical notes. You use these notes, you can reach in great, great places, but you must just say it lip service. Invest it with kavana, with intention. Tefillah, kavana is like a body without a soul. It's not just a body without a soul. A soul, so every time you say Shema, you say it with a different intention, the emphasis on Echod, Echod itself. What does unity mean in your life? What does the divine unity mean in so many different applications of it? So the fact that we're saying the same thing or we're doing the same mitzvah, that's the technical mechanics of it. But the premise of the mitzvah, which is what premise Atera, the inner dimension, introduces the soul. Shabbos, you can do Shabbos by rote every week and it looks like, 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 a, like a carbon copy, boring, monotonous. Or you can infuse it with passion and vitality and each time do it differently. So the structure is necessary, the Bahar, to keep the Sal Bahar Sinai, that this is the way we've been doing it from the time when Sinai gave it to us, when we received that Sinai, Mesha Kibbal Tatum is Sinai. And this is, the, this is the way, not more, not less, exactly. But B'chakese Telechu says that those chukim, and and all the mitzvahs that came from Sinai should be in a form of telechu, movement. Look at the word halacha. Halacha means law. But we know there's an expression, halicha means movement. Law seems rigid, no movement. And yet, as the Shalom explains when it says al-tikri, 
It doesn't mean it negates the first interpretation. It leaves the first interpretation. So we have movement plus laws. Why? Because the laws are not meant to be rigid, static experiences that are done like mechanical and by rote, mitzvah, sanashim, elamada, mechanical Judaism. But they're meant to be infused with a life. That's why you find the Chumash so many times. It says, Hayyim. V'yadayta Hayyim. Atam netzavim Hayyim. Today, says Rashi, why Hayyim? So based on Medr, she quotes that because it's, it should never be diyut kediyut gemach yeshena. You should never do a mitzvah like it was an old thing. So potato says Hayyim. Not just Hayyim today when Moshe said it, but every time you read it, and we live with the times, and we read it now, it's as if it's happening right now. Kol yem kechadoshim. Every day it should be in your eyes like new, or sometimes it says chadoshim, literally new. Kol yem. Is it new? No, it's a mitzvah that somebody did before. And you may have done it the day before. But when you do it now, it should be infused with a new kavona. You play the music in a new way. Same music. And that's the beauty of it, that on one hand you have the bahar, the firmness of the mountain, and the same, at the same time you have the chukesetilehu, that it is movement. You're moving in it. It's halicha. And it's, constant, um, it's a constant journey of growth and expansion based on the principles that are unwavering. Because that cannot, so you need to have the principles unwavering allows you then to expand in so many directions in its intention and its effect on you and effect on the world around us. Which is interesting, Bechukese also, Chesidus comes from the word Chekike. That's why Chuka Chakakti, Gzeri It's like engraved letters. Engraved letters are like Bahar. They're unflexible. Once you engrave a letter, not like a written letter, you could erase it, you can change it. Once you engrave it, it's very difficult to change. It's part of the object itself. Part of the stone is now the letters. Yet, in Bukhukesai, so, but together with Chikike, with the engraving and the solid foundation, the Telechu. So, seemingly, ostensibly, it could be two different types of even contradictory terms, but that's the power of, of what Jewish Judaism teaches us, that you have solid foundational principles. Those are unwavering and unchanging, and on then you build unbelievable type of growth and movement. And it's not a contradiction, just as it is with, with the music analogy that I gave and so many other analogies that are similar to that. So, the lesson, of course, is, is far-reaching and addresses many questions that have been asked and have addressed in the past, which is, how do you apply Torah and mitzvahs to a person who's growing, who's, who's a free-spirited person, an open-minded person? They don't want to just conform to someone else's rules. So unfortunately, many of, many of the educational systems in our system often teach it strictly like that. This is what you do, and that's it. So they're half right. This is what you do, and you're supposed to follow the guidelines. But imagine teaching someone just to follow the musical notes and never showing them how those notes make, make them come alive through your passion, through your vibrancy, through your personal investment in it. That's the second half of it. So we're not talking about changing, God forbid, the laws, the halachas, but we're talking about infusing it with that type of chayas. So you can have two people do a mitzvah, one is doing it and is doing it by rote, mechanically, and another is doing it with such a passion and such energy and such vitality that everybody wants to be involved when something is so alive. That's our work, is to take what was given to us, not change it, but infuse it with that type of excitement. And this is true across the board. Everything in life can be this way. You can do the same thing, very boring, monotonous, and uh, by rote, or you can do it in an exciting and passionate way. 
That's a lesson in our lives. With that, let us go to first question. Um, is there any truth to the idea of chassidim and family members giving of their years to the Rebbe? So here's a question, a new question I don't believe I've addressed in the past. Let me read it in detail. I've heard various stories of different chassidim and family members giving of their years to the Rebbe in their time to extend the Rebbe's life. Is there any truth to this? The answer is yes, there is truth to this. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to share with you a story that I heard from one of the eunuchs, which is you know, the son of Rabbel eunuch, who is a masked, a secretary of the Rebbe for many years, a loyal secretary. He actually, until his passing, used to be the person who would fill the Rebbe's costs with wine for uh, Kiddush, Shabbos, as well as stand by Kesha Brach and re- keep refilling the cup. That was his role. That changed when he passed away. Rabbi Mentli continued. Now, um, so one of the eunuchs tells the story, the following story. In the year Tof Reis Pei Aleph, this is the year after the stalkus of the Rebbe Rashab, the father of the Friedrich Rebbe. Friedrich Rebbe fell very ill, gravely ill with typhus. His condition was very serious and his life was in danger. So Chassidim then got together and decided that we're going to donate years, they're going to donate years to the Rebbe. In a conversation with the wife of the Rashag, she shared with Rabbi Yunich, who was a bochra at the time, more details of these events. The conditions that were set at the time was the members of Beis Harav, that had to be people from the families of the Rabbeim, were permitted to donate up to one year, and anyone else was permitted to donate up to one half of a year. The total of the years donated at the time, between the half years and complete years, was 30 years. In fact, the Friedrich Rebbe was installed in Yudshva Tov Yud, approximately 30 years later. From Tafresh Pei Pei Aleph. The story had a the story had a great impact on uh, on Shimshi Eunuch. This is the eunuch that the story happened with, and he awakened a, des- a desire and resolve to donate some of his own years to the Rebbe. He didn't take the decision lightly. He thought about it long and hard, and after a few months of consideration, decided to write to the Rebbe about his pledge. He wrote a letter to the Rebbe in which he repeated the details that he had heard. Um, and he admitted the element of the half year, and he concluded to the Rebbe that after considering the matter very seriously, he decided he wants to give one year of his life to the Rebbe. Sometime later, he received a reply from the Rebbe. The Rebbe had torn, off, torn his name over the rest of his letter and wrote his response on the piece with his name in a way that the secretaries who gave over the answer could not know, didn't know what was written in the actual letter, which was common that the Rebbe, maintaining confidentiality, would do that. You'd only have the answer and what was relevant, the word that only the person who wrote it would understand the answer. We know this answer because he shared it himself, not because of uh, obviously any breach of confidentiality. And here's the Rebbe's words. I'm going to read them word for word because they're so tremendous to hear the Rebbe write, responding to him. This was Sivan Tovshim Mem Gimel. So this is basically, this almost coming up now, Sivan Tovshim Mem Gimel would be 1983. So we're talking about 1993, 2000, uh, 35 years ago. And the Rebbe wrote like this. I'll translate. Well, first let me read the whole answer and then I'll translate. The Rebbe underlines the word v'yakir, lil mitere b'shkida, 
underlined twice with a pen. The first was underlined with a pencil. And, uh, and Vizuhi, that's in other words, that will be the Amitas and the Sina was underlined again twice with a pen. And Lee again underlined twice, once with a pencil, once with a pen. That's how I have the answer here. Let me translate. The Rebbe said, your intention is, is uh, well, uh, it's uh, good intentions, acceptable intentions. But a person, but you should not be busy with things that are not in relationship with you. You should value every year and every, even every day to learn Teda, Bishkida with, uh, with uh, a lot of, uh, with effort, with great effort. And that's the true thing that you can give me. Ask Galitzian. So we have here both the fact that the concept exists, we know that it happened. I, mean, I remember Tov Shalom Ches, when the Rebbe had the heart attack, there were Chassidim that did exactly the same thing. They gave years and time. Different people gave different parts of time. And as we said here, the story of the Fidik Rebbe and Tov But you also have the Rebbe's answer, his attitude to it. So that answers the question. I was wondering and thinking, everything is why would we be talking about this right now? It's after Gimel Tammuz. This seemed to be relevant before that. But you have to remember, giving a Rebbe, from the Rebbe's answer, is clearly more than years, giving him the nachas, and giving him limudatera, and dedicating your life and doing things that fulfill the Rebbe's directives, and his teachings. And of course, not just him, but all the Rebbe, and we're giving actually life to them. Because a Rebbe's life is, as the Alta Rebbe says in the Geras HaKedish, chayim ruchnim, not chayim sarim, not life of flesh, but spiritual life. What ave, v'yire, and amuna. Love and awe of God and faith. So when we commit ourselves to that, as the Rebbe said a number of times, you want to connect with me, you don't connect with me in the physical way. Do what I do. Learn what I learn. Do what I do. Mitzvahs that I do and the directives that I've given. So of course it's consistent. So the lesson is clear. And I'm sure there's more on this topic. Anyone has any more information, any more answers or any other stories or other things, please share it. And I will be... Meaning that this was the merit of many, because I will share it here for the listeners. Okay. Let us now go to the next question. Is the Torah always sensitive to people's feelings? The person writes, I feel like Torah doesn't pay attention to one's feelings. Hi. I noticed a few mitzvahs that seem to ignore human living being and feelings. The first mitzvah is mentioned in regards to eating in a sukkah. The Gemara mentions that one is obligated to sit in a sukkah. However, one is allowed to leave the sukkah if it rains, being that this will cause him discomfort. Yet when the Gemara talks about an oval, an oval is someone who's uh, unfortunately lost a parent, in regards, or lost a close one, that oval turns him into a mourner. In regards to the same mitzvah, seemingly the rules are stricter. The Gemara mentions that an oval is obligated to sit in a sukkah, and if one asks, but an oval, uh, uh, asks, but an oval may be emotionally disturbed, feel saddened by the loss of his or her family, the Gemara responds with, he is the one that is allowing himself to be uncomfortable, and therefore let him go and rest his mind. Which implies that oval is obligated to go rest his mind to be able to perform the mitzvah, may not, may not, but may not be exempt from the command of sitting in the sukkah. In other words, but he's also mitzvah, he's also in pain. So the Gemara does not recognize that. It's saying that he's allowing, he's allowing himself to be uncomfortable. Let him go work on that. But he should not forego the mitzvah of sukkah. So the question, of course, is why? Why are we not sensitive to this person's feelings? 
How can one compare the pain caused by rain and the pain caused by death? Seemingly, the Torah is putting a greater emphasis on the mitzvah and is overlooking a person's emotional state. The second is when discussing a ger, convert. The Torah states that one shouldn't say personal offensive words, being that the ger may not want to perform and do Torah and mitzvahs. Example, you wouldn't tell him that the same mouth that ate pig now wants to come and learn Torah. You don't say such a thing to a ger. Yet again, it seems that the Torah is commanding us not to say offensive remarks out of fear that the ger won't want to do Torah and mitzvahs. But not because of his feelings, his human feelings, that perhaps this may offend the ger and cause him great insult, emotional pain. The third example is regarding the mitzvah of Shiluah HaKan. We've talked about this in the last few weeks. Shiluah HaKan is the mitzvah of sending away, Khan means the nest, but sending away the mother if you want to take the eggs of her fledglings. Sending the mother bird away from her nest. I understand there are mitzvahs that are chukim, and we may not understand them. But even shechting animals, which may, which may be the opposite of merciful, is done to help humans live and be sustained for them to be able to serve God. Yet this mitzvah has no beneficial purpose in our eyes. Sending away a mother bird just to take the eggs chicks? It's not like we can benefit. We wouldn't be shechting the chicks anyway. And even more, more so, one is supposed to perform the mitzvah even if the person doesn't want to keep the eggs and the babies. That means the mitzvah is purely done and comes across as being performed by a ruthless, merciless person. Not taking into account little chicks that want to stay with their mother. It bothers me to see repeated mitzvahs being done for the mitzvah itself while ignoring the human living being feelings, being's feelings. I keep on noticing this pattern where Torah pushes away the human feeling and gravitates to the benefit of the mitzvah itself. And if the response is how the entire purpose of creation, including human beings' feelings, are for the purpose of godliness, then that itself is a question. Why does the Torah then create a human in such a way that he or she feels that his feelings are valid and important, and then in an instant they are ignored? Perhaps we should have been created like a robot angel without emotions. We are put in this unfair position. I would appreciate any light on this topic. Thanks. Excellent question. And let me address it. One common error, and I would say it's even an axiomatic principle that needs to be stated whenever talking about Teir Mitzvahs, is that the God that created life is the one that gave us Torah and mitzvahs, not the other way around. It's not like we exist, created by God, and then there's a book that tells us, do this, do that. When you talk, for example, human law, the law system, whatever country, those are human beings creating laws of coexistence, red lights and green lights, and other laws for us to be able to coexist. There's nothing about it that's inherently connected to our lives. It's just a human effort to try to make sense and try to create order in our lives. Sometimes it's good, and sometimes that those laws have to be changed. Here's the other way around. God created the human being. The engineer created the human being. The Torah is God's blueprint for creation. He looked into the Torah, and with that he created the world, including each one of us. So think of the Torah and mitzvahs as life's operator's manual. You want to know the best way a human being can work, just like a machine. The best way is to follow the guidelines of the one who built the machine. Now, sometimes we understand it very directly. Sometimes we don't understand it very directly. A while back, I spoke about a, situation, a letter that the Rebbe wrote to a, to a family, to a girl, a young teenager, a teenager that lost her mother at a young age. 
And she, she wrote about, you know, why this happened. And the Rebbe, a fascinating letter, very painful, but also very empowering letter, writes, a, asks a question. Why is it that when you sit Shiva, no one should ever know about it, but you sit Shiva and grieve over a parent, over a loved one, why is it the Tater says you have to sit seven days? Shiva, seven. Otherwise, Shabbos, Yomtev, is, not, is counted in the count, if, if the Shiva began before, it's counted. But at the end of the day, it's a total of seven days. It says anyone that sits more is over-grieving and inappropriate. Anyone that sits less is an achzorius. Either way, it's compared to be something cruel. So the obvious question that Rebbe asked is he could regulate emotions. The person's crying. He's crying over the loss of a parent, just like you mentioned, the oval. We're going to regulate. And the answer is that God created the human being. He created us with empathy, the need for parents, the love to parents, and the pain when the parent is lost. He's also created and telling us what's the best way to health, to, in a healthy way, and the most healthy way to grieve. A person who self-indulges in grieving more than necessary is doing themselves a disservice. It's not about, oh, we're telling you to stop crying suddenly. We're telling you this is the healthy standard of how a person should grieve. And this is the natural way of the catharsis and the healing that happens. Healing happens in time. You cut yourself, God forbid. It's going to take time for it to heal. This is all part of the system. So the Tate is telling us, when it comes to issues like this, what is the healthiest way to grieve? And the same thing is, what's the best way to celebrate? So Tate and Mitzvah has to be seen not as a superimposed element that superimposes itself over life, but it's actually telling us how best to experience our emotions, the healthiest way. Someone say, listen, I'm really angry at someone. I don't want to forgive them. So the Tater says, no, there's a mitzvah to forgive. But there are conditions. The person has to ask for forgiveness. They don't hurt you in the process. You see that they truly are showing remorse. There's conditions. It's not just go beyond against your emotions. It's telling us how to have the healthiest emotions. So if you take that axiom in, in mind, then every mitzvah is really the best way for us to be the best we can be. Emotionally. So it's not Taylor is disregarding feelings. On the contrary, it's telling us how best to develop these feelings. Why, Taka, don't you sit Shiva and Shabbos and Yanta, for example? Not because you did losses, but suddenly on Friday, a person is sitting Shiva and they're remembering their lost one, they're crying and they're grieving. On Sunday, they continue sitting Shiva. Suddenly, Shabbos says you shouldn't sit Shiva. Because Shabbos is not a day where you're going into denial and forgetting. Shabbos is saying, sometimes in part of the grieving, realize that there's days that console you and you shouldn't have to cry. The Shabbos, in a sense, is giving you power to get through this because grieving is not just an end in itself. So it's actually like the Rebbe says about Tachron. If you don't say Tachron on a certain day, it means the day itself is accomplishing what Tachron would accomplish. Shabbos, in its own way, is consoling. It's telling you, today is a day where you can connect to something that will give you strength as you get through this difficult time. And it's not a time to cry in, in the direct way. You cry through the simcha, through the tainug of Shabbos. So it's never negating feelings. It's telling us how to channel, how to harness, and how to grow through those feelings. Now, sometimes we can easily understand this. Sometimes it needs a little effort. The examples you gave, is ostensibly it would seem so, but first let's go back to the axiom. Take this axiom, and you'll see you're going to apply it to every situation. The Gemara is saying, Hamitztayel, Potem in a sukkah, Correct. Now here's a person who's an oval and saying he's uncomfortable sitting in the sukkah. What is the Tater saying? The Tater saying on the contrary. It's like a person who's depressed. Doesn't want to go to the party. Sometimes it's important to say, no, you have to go. It'll help you heal. 
This idea that you're going to avoid the mitzvah of sukkah because you're uncomfortable, we're not negating your feelings, we're telling you it's the healthiest ways for you to engage because this mitzvah will console you. A, a sukkah embraces you. So even though, yes, you have pain, we understand it, we're telling you what's the healthiest way for you to get through this, the catharsis that the sukkah provides. That's why the tater is like saying that. So it's not dismissing and disregarding saying the mitzvah is more important than you. The whole rules are v'chaybahem. You shall live by them, not not that you should die by them, it's that you shall live by them, which means literally that it makes you come alive. The three mitzvahs or avedas that a person has to die before they are, are, uh, transgress them, God forbid, is murder, incest, and, um, and avedas zara, idolatry. The explanation there is also because once you do those things, you're actually depriving yourself of spiritual life if you kill someone else. But that's another discussion. So the point here is it's always about best what is for you. So when we say to the Ger, yes, you could say it in simple terms, be sensitive, but that's a given. If you look in the Torah, it says how you should look, the love, that five times it says you have to show love to a Ger. Not because he's going to stick to Torah mitzvahs, because that's the sensitivity. You were also a stranger once. That means the sensitivity to strangers. But the Torah is going a step further. You want him to be able to hold on to his mitzvahs because that's his vitality. It's your life and your sustenance. So the is not saying we're forgetting about his feelings and just focusing. We need him in the club. We need another person who's doing mitzvahs. But on the contrary, it's saying that's the best way to help the person grow and also be sensitive to him. Now, unfortunately, we see very often that there are people who keep Torah mitzvahs and are very insensitive. So it gives the impression that Torah mitzvahs is insensitive. No. Tatum is absolutely sensitive because the same giver of life. What do we learn again and again and again? Even when the Egyptians were drowning in the sea, Hashem and the angels started singing Shira, praise, Egyptians, Nazis of the time, says, my creatures are drowning and you're singing praise. Even when they deserved it. The sensitivity is beyond words because it's divine, sensitivity to the divine. Even tearing a leaf off and rubbing it. Baltashchis even of the environment, let alone of a human being. How was Moshe chosen to be the leader? With sheep. The sensitivity is shown to sheep. So Tehidah Mitzvah is the best way to be sensitive. Sometimes we understand it. Sometimes it needs explanation. On the contrary, it's a good challenge. And the same thing with Shiloh HaKan. If you look in the Biyurim, in Sefer HaChinuch, and in the Chassidus, of course, you'll understand Shiloh HaKan is a compassionate act. It's not about callousness. Because of course you could ask, why are you taking the, 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 the chicks away in the first place? Why are you taking that? There's a mother involved. So there's a whole union in it. I'm not going to go into the details, but again, it's never, never you'll find them tater mitzvah that would go against the human nature, the nature that God created, the empathy necessary, the sensitivity. It doesn't make any sense. It would be like the engineer of the machine created something that ignores the welfare of the machine because he just simply wants his laws fulfilled. The laws are meant to be how the machine will work best. So let's put aside the people who are novel brishusatera, means they're despicable using the tera. That's not what we're discussing here. That's human beings, and that itself is a sin. Avish Yisrael, the greatest mitzvah. Avish says, when you love another, it's like you love me. And if you love me, you're going to love what I love. All, again, the focus on the sensitivity to other human beings, and that's the whole tera. Lasish shalom ba'elam, le'nit n'tera, lasish shalom ba'elam. To bring peace in the world, peace between one and another, spouses, families, communities, nations, 
And of course, peace within yourself. And that's how you have to see it. Every mitzvah, if someone has a mitzvah that seems callous or insensitive, submit it, and we can review it. Shaluch Khan, maybe I'll do in another program in just more detail. I don't want to go into more necessary. But basically, all mitzvahs have that element of that sensitivity. Sometimes, I said, you see it openly. And sometimes, it needs explanation. That means, look in the tater, you see, wow, this tater's psychological insight into human nature. It's really God's insight telling us what's best for this human being and how to heal. And how to, how, sometimes sensitivity is important. Sometimes you have to tell a person you're over-grieving. You're overly sensitive and we need, to, we, we need you to become stronger. And knowing that is the key, the loving key. That's why I said it's an axiom to understand every way whether the Torah is telling us to be kind or the Torah is telling in this case do not be kind. That doesn't mean not to be kind. That's the kindness. The kindness is sometimes through tough love or other approaches that help the person grow, always with that goal in mind. Next question. Next question is this. How can a spouse handle a relationship when there's absolutely no, absolutely no intimacy? Okay. The question goes like this. Well, it's a woman actually writing, so how can a woman handle a relationship with her husband when there's absolutely no intimacy? Obviously, the question goes both ways, but I'm reading it as it was written to me. The husband is a decent provider and is, a good, and is as good a husband as one can hope for. He does hug and kiss and cuddle. Uh, however, intimacy is something that seems necessary. And my question is, how is someone supposed to deal with it? Okay, case by case, it's very difficult to answer because I don't know the reasons. I don't know what's going on. I will refer you to episodes 5 and 152. In those episodes, one of them, I believe five, I discussed a man who wrote to the Rebbe, I'm just using one example that as possible, that he is avoiding intimacy because of precious, because it's for holy purposes. Not to indulge himself in, in, in sexuality and intimacy. And the Rebbe wrote him such a sharp note and go back to episode 5, I read it in detail, and saying it's not, this is not an acceptable behavior. The Teda says, and now the Rebbe cites actually Teda Eir in Megillah Sester, that says that the relationship husband and wife is, is, is founded in the highest, highest levels of Kedusha. It's not a derech like this. We all know the mitzvah, meaning a husband has obligations, conjugal obligations, including that is equated together with the obligations for food and, and clothing. And there's an obligation. But, but not just obligation, it's also part of the relationship of having the closeness and intimacy that every healthy relationship deserves to have in a sacred way, in a sanctified way. So it's important to answer this question to know what the reasons are, if there are reasons. And are there legitimate, even uh, legitimate, I can't say legitimate reasons, but is there something that needs to be addressed? Like in the case like this person wrote to the Rebbe. But... Whoever whoever's listening, whether it's the one part of the spouse or another, do never remember this. In a relationship, there are two people. You can't just think about yourself. You can't just think what is good for you, even if you think it's a holier thing. There's another person involved. And the Teda makes that very clear, as I mentioned in the previous segment that I just spoke about sensitivity. The Teda is all about sensitivity and loving another person, especially a spouse. And that love is part of the nurturing and the watering and the nourishing of a spirit that allows the people to function in a home, bringing up children, 
and all the other obligations and challenges that every home life and life itself and self provides. So whether it's husband to wife or wife to husband, it is absolutely necessary that both understand this. And if there's an issue, I would suggest going to a third party because sometimes it's very difficult for spouses to speak about this with each other. For, there may be some reason the husband doesn't want to say. There may be other factors that need to be taken into account, medical factors, other factors. So it's hard to answer but, the, 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 but it definitely do not be sufficed by just accepting it. This has to be addressed, and addressed to the fullest. And there's nothing wrong with being vulnerable and being open to each other. As I said, if necessary, and it probably is necessary, to go to a third party, whether it's a medical third party or it's a mashpia, or it's someone that you can confide in, both of you trust, and just air this out and talk about it. Because also the spouse may not even be aware how their other spouse is suffering from this and how much it's hurting and affecting them. So if this is a platform where I can state that, I'm stating that right now, and it's important to know that and not wait for things to get worse, God forbid, but actually address this and nip it in the bud. So, um, so in answering the question, can I, I mean, how can a spouse handle? I, I can't tell you to handle. Now, obviously, if there's going to be an, ex, an extenuating circumstance, a real reason, whether it's medical or others, then that has to be addressed. You know? um, but... I would not just sit by, as I said, and be passive. I would do something about it. I also wouldn't become aggressive and angry and take it out because that would just create more problems. I would look for a sensitive way to address this, as I said, with a third party. But again, episodes 5 and 152, I spoke about it. And um, if someone wants to provide more details and you don't want me to read them uh, and, and address them publicly, meaning in this program, you can feel free to do that. But just add your email address so I can respond or if necessary, have a phone call with you. So not everything that's sent to me, I have to read. If you ask me specifically not to, I will absolutely not read it and not address it. But here I'm talking in ways that hopefully are relevant. Well, hopefully not relevant to anybody. But I mean to say that I'm reading it because for the benefit that it could be for others who may have similar questions and may have not asked or ashamed to ask. So I just wanted to point that out. But this is definitely an issue that needs to be pursued and most likely in more discreet manner than just a public forum like this. But I think I said there's sufficient enough what is sufficient to be able to move this forward. Next question. How should a teenager interact in a healthy way with the opposite gender? Or what is the healthy way for a teenager to interact with the opposite gender? Okay. So let me read the question. It's rather... Not a short one. Okay. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I just want to thank you for creating a forum where people can ask such essential and ironically vulnerable questions with accurate and judgment-free answers. I'm a 21-year-old Baal Tshuva, and I'm currently a Bochur in Yeshiva. However, I've been from since my early teens. Generally, a person begins to develop their sexuality both mentally and physically during their early teens. I did not have any education in a frum environment until after high school, and therefore spent most of my life in a mixed environment. I fear that during my early teenage years, I hid behind sneas, shomenigia, that's modesty, and shomenigia meaning not touching the other gender, rather than developing my ability to interact with the opposite sex. In addition, I don't think my parents loved each other for the majority of my life, and did not have proper models in this regard. On the contrary, I believe... They were quite negative role models in this regard. This, on top of bullying during those younger years, I believe has led to some sort of phobia or social anxiety of with the opposite gender. At the moment, I have a significantly more difficult time talking to women at a Shabbos table, etc., 
as the majority of times that I do, which at this point in my life is much more rare due to being in yeshiva, I get nervous and anxious to the point where I lose the ability to have a serious conversation. I believe the main source of this anxiety is due to the fact that I can't draw a definitive line between what others will view as a platonic conversation versus one that is not. Not only does this have the potential of ruining Shabbos meals and other similar social gatherings, but this gives me a lot of anxiety about Shaduchim, which due to my age is becoming a reality. I also slightly, albeit perhaps irrationally, fear that my ability to interact with the opposite gender is irreparably marred. This can be very stressful and debilitating at times. I really only come to this observation when I started spending more time around from people in yeshiva and noticed that they did not have, the simil- did not have similar issues. As a disclaimer... This is my own observation. I am open to other views. However, the problem is that I don't feel comfortable bringing this issue to anyone due to fear of being judged and misunderstood. This is why, this is why it's such an amazing opportunity to take advantage of the anonymity of this forum. In general, as you, dis- as you discussed during this week's episode with regard to abusive parents, this question was written a while back, so it's a few months back, one of the ways to overcome fear is exposure therapy to slightly expose yourself to the source of your fear, to re-educate yourself regarding it. I have researched this specific issue in the context of this strategy, and I found that people overcome this by being very outgoing toward the opposite gender in social situations. The issue is that halacha prohibits, for the large part, interacting with the opposite gender outside of the context of marriage and family. This makes my ability to use this exposure therapy, quote-unquote, strategy, harder as the opportunity only represents itself in a handful of situations, and even then is greatly limited due to halacha itself and how others perceive what I am doing, that is, attempting to have a normal interaction with the opposite gender around me. Hashem does not give us challenges that we can't overcome, and therefore there must be a halachic way to overcome this. Did the Rebbe have any advice in regard to the subject? Is there any way to reconcile this strategy with halacha? Thank you so much. Okay, I don't believe a question like this has been asked, or maybe asked, but I didn't address at least. I will firstly refer you to related topics I discussed in episodes 59, 104, 105, and 147. They're discussing healthy ways to teach people about gender as people grow up, the right boundaries, but at the same time also in a healthy way. So the, the key emphasis is healthy. And as I said before, healthy is one with teira and mitzvahs. So the tater way is the healthiest way. Sometimes people do things because that's what it says, and they're, listen, they're missing the spirit, and that's why it can be very dysfunctional and unhealthy. I mentioned before, novel b'rashus which means being despicable, b'rashus using tater, using, like finding a tater way to be despicable, God forbid. So it's critical to understand that tater was given to bring, create healthy people, every aspect of it. The Tater did not come to create phobias and neurosis and all the other things that cause psychological issues and challenges. Balance. Balance. As the Rambam writes, the a person should always choose the moderate way, the, path, the middle path. Moderation. Not too extreme to the right, not extreme to the left. And this is especially true when it comes to issues of sexuality and gender relationships where the passions and hormones can be flowing and other factors that take control so it's critical to be moderation or else you can get into big trouble. Obsession can often be an outgrowth of deep repression. So let's talk about what the healthy way. Let's talk the healthy model. 
And then we'll address when someone's already been in a situation that's not healthy. Healthy model is the following. God created human beings in this world. The human beings are zohar in the cave, of male and female. That's a reality on the ground. Most people growing up in a home may have sisters or brothers. So they know that. As we grow older, when we're younger, there's not much difference because perhaps children are not aware of it. And therefore, there's, there's a, that issue doesn't come up. But as children start growing, they start recognizing, I'm a boy, I'm a girl, here's a girl. And if it's an, an immediate family, you start learning that girls have their trajectory in life and that boys have their trajectory. In school, in a from school, there's segregation. So there's different uh, schools. But there's inevitably going to be your interaction. It could be at a Shabbos table. And I said, I'm not talking about family members. I just mentioned that because that's the context. But in a healthy family, you learn your relationship. Just because you have a brother or sister doesn't mean that, uh, that you have to know everything about them. There's certain private things that each person has in their own world. The same thing extends in strangers. So you have at a table, boys and girls. You meet them in the street. You, different interactions. The healthy approach is not an obsessive, crazy, uh, I'm sorry, an obsessive, crazy type of repression. You see a girl, you've got to run away. I've seen this at, a t- at tables where there were some boys at the table and then some girls came. That's a, so some, once, I literally, I saw a boy that Mamish ran out. Why? Why can't you just sit at the table, say hello, say good Shabbos? You have to engage in extra conversation? No. But you don't have to behave in a crazy way. Because that alone suggests a problem. There's a problem? God created men and women in this world. Do men and women have challenges? Of course there's the sexual challenges and the gender issues, especially as we grow older. But how you deal with a challenge is not in a crazy manner where you go and you press yourself and run away to the other direction. Take everything in stride because when you do that, guaranteed then you become obsessed with it. So repression leads to obsession. Now, what means not, not repression? Not repression doesn't mean to act on everything you want to act. There are the, the, the etiquette, the proper boundaries, dignified boundaries between people in general, especially between men and women, and the Tata teaches that. But not in some type of phobic and neurotic way that, that you know, why we segregated. We segregated because men and women are different, and they can have attraction to each other, and that attraction has to be reserved for the healthy time in the proper way. Not because there's something wrong with a woman or something wrong with a man. There's nothing ugly about the relationship. Marriage is the most beautiful thing. The Ramban has that famous letter where he writes that sexuality, as I mentioned before, is not an ugly thing or, a, or something to be ashamed of. It's a divine force that connects people. In a sacred way, they become one as they were created by God. And you can explain this to people in a very normal way. At the same time, are there dangers? I don't like the word dangers. I would just say that there's a, a need for dignity, a need for tzniyas. Sneeze doesn't just mean what you, how, you, how you dress. Sneeze is how you behave. You behave with dignity, with respect to everyone, especially a boy and a girl. I remember my own house. I have, I have two sisters. One, one of my sisters we used to fight. At, at the stage where I think back, I'm ashamed of it. You know, sometimes I was a little stronger. My father would always defend my sister, and even if she was wrong. But I remember behaving a certain way. I shouldn't have behaved with the girl, but she was young. We were, I remember, seven years old. Now I think back. But the point of the matter is, so you teach people, obviously there's a dignified way of behaving with even your own siblings, but definitely with others, and in a way that is both discreet and modest, same time without crossing any lines, same time doesn't have to be that, you know, you put your hands over your ears, over your eyes and ears and say, no, I can't look at you, I can't talk to you. So generally speaking, in a from healthy environment, yes, men and women are, keep, are separate until they go dating. 
But that doesn't mean that if they interact with each other in some way for whatever reason, it has to be in an awkward or crazy way. It's to be normal, a normal relationship. That way, when you grow to the stage, when you grow to the adult, when you will meet a woman, it won't be with all these extremes. Now, a person who's already in a situation like you're describing, I would say you have to have good role models. You need to talk to someone that can put it back into a balanced way. And yes, I would use what you suggested, a type of exposure therapy. I'm not saying you have to go out of the way, but especially if you're coming to dating, you'd probably be wise to have a conversation with a woman, not you know, maybe a woman just to be able to have a normal conversation so you shouldn't go crazy because of your, all your phobias and neuroses that have developed. Now, that woman should be someone you're dating. But in case you may need help, you may need a mashpia or someone to talk to that can help um, so-called guide you in this direction. But you have to always remember what the healthy model is. If we know the healthy model, we follow that. And the healthy model is not an extreme running the other way of extreme suppression or repression. And the healthy model is also not obviously extreme indulgence. It's a moderate way, a balanced way, a normal, a normal thing, and that's that. That when you meet somebody, you're always, you're always respectful. You say hello, and you know how to have a conversation if necessary. But it does not be a conversation that goes um, to, to, to any type of extremes, not one way, not the other way. That's the key thing to always remember. Okay. With that, we did some questions. Let's do some follow-up. Then we'll do the chassidus question and then the essays. Some follow-up, pretty short follow-ups, but I'll do a bunch of follow-ups to get finish these subjects. So we've been talking about butterflies last week. And here's a few comments that people wrote about different topics that I've spoken about in the last episodes, episodes 210 and 211. So we spoke butterflies in context of, of children seeing animals that are not pure or, or, or not kosher. So I discussed it. I'm just reading what someone wrote. Having butterfly design on something of an adult, not children, is just owning, having, or using something with butterflies all right, or is it an issue only for children, or only for children to see is an issue? Thank you. Again, I think in the, when not going with the extremes, we have to keep in mind, what the Rebbe said about protecting children and making sure they see holy things and kosher things, he qualified, of course, zoos, and he qualified the fact that in Tata we talk about types of animals. And we qualified also when you look in nature in general, you see animals. You walk in the street in New York, for example, there are squirrels. And there are pigeons. Okay, pigeons are squirrels. And there are other animals, cats, dogs. So it's not about an extreme. We're talking about giving someone a gift. Might as well give a pure thing. If someone buys a garment and there's butterfly design in it, I don't know if you have to go crazy about that. If you're thinking about it and you have two choices, so fine. But again, butterflies, I don't know if you call them, they're definitely not kosher, but I don't know if we should take it to that extreme. So I think we have to, again, take everything with a little moderation. So that's how I would respond to that. Um, the Rebbe's brother, so someone corrected, yes, I, I mentioned, I mistakenly said, Shalom Deber, or I said, I said, Shalom Deber or Deber. The Rebbe's brother's name is Deber, not Shalom Deber. Correction noted. Someone suggests also, please mention the Rishima of the Rebbe's brother by the Friedrich Rebbe. There's a Rishima in the Rishimis, in the, the Rishimis that were published after Gimel Tammuz, that speaks about a dream, the Friedrich Rebbe talk, telling the Rebbe about a dream that about, the, about the, Rebbe, the Rebbe's brother. So you can look up that Rishima in the Rishimis. I'm glad you mentioned, so I'm mentioning it. Yarmulke. So um, we, the question was asked about four parts or six part Yarmulke. So this person writes, I don't have a source, but I was macabre in yeshiva in Montreal. I believe that we macked it to have six sections because with four, it ends up being a, like a tzalem. 
Well, I checked into this. There's no source that a yarmulke has to have six parts and not four. And this idea of finding uh, something that looks like a cross, God forbid, a crucifix, you can see it anywhere if you start looking for it. So I've never seen it. I've not seen a source for six parts. It could be just became something that is just practical or a, human, or a custom, but there's no source for it. And I asked some people who are reliable, and they have not seen such a thing either. Another person writes about the yarmulke issue. I guess the yarmulke is an obsession, another obsession. Glad to see you address the yarmulke. Sometimes the reason you do so, to do something is just because that's what chassidim do. As the Rebbe replied to someone, they asked what to do about trimming a mustache. For years I have not listened to your classes as much as I wanted to, because I was not willing to learn chassidus from someone who would, in my opinion, not dress 100% like a chassid. Doesn't take away from your great intellect, of course, but Tayden Chassidus is Emes, and there's no place for oneself and living, dressing, and acting like a Chassid in public, and of course in private, which cannot be seen, is paramount to being a Chassid who, can, who we can learn Chassidus from. Independence is important, and we learn from Dug Machai, such as Ramendel, Rabiel, Rabshleim Machayim, etc., who would, never, who would never wear a knitted yarmulke. The Bavitz Chassidim go above the letter of the law. If this is published, maybe it shouldn't be, but I hope it gets to you. And I apologize for saying what I'm saying. I do not come to your toes in title learning. I'm just being frank and honest with you and have a real desire to look up to you because I know I can learn a lot from you. So in response to that, I can't speak for Rabbi Jacobson, but could be that, he's like, that he likes a knitted yarmulke for whatever reason, and that's why he wears it. We have those things which we do. For some, it's being judgmental. For others, it's being haughty. And for others, it's wearing a knitted yarmulke. You decide what's more of an issue to address. Okay, I'm not going to comment much on these uh, comments. I'm reading them. As you know, I don't hesitate reading, even if it's critical. And, um, and we all try our best, and I hope you can learn from people that you really can look up to. And by all means, and uh, I don't, uh, you know, I think you have to think in terms of a whole package. There are people we all can learn from. Are they perfect? I don't know if they're perfect. I'm hardly perfect. Um, if you can learn from me, great. If not, what can I tell you? That's your thing. And that's all I'll say about that. Okay. With that, the yarmulke, let's see what it does. God accept us for who we are. That was last week's episode. Hashem Tanya is asking you to change the levushim and not your keiches, the garments. That's your thought, speech, and action, but not your faculties, which you cannot change. One needs to define what the difference is between the two. Know who you are and know what can be changed and work on that. And use your real self to express your individuality and what's asked of you. Okay, good point that God accepts us who we are. He's not going to accept, yes, faculties who we have, but how you express those faculties, yes, is something that's expected from us, as the Tanya explains. Another follow-up is Mashiach and Geula. What is the difference between Hashem being, asking Hashem to bring Mashiach and to bring the Geula? Why do our actions make a difference when Hashem will be the one that takes us out of Gaulus? Again, theme talk, talked about last week in episode 211. By the way, you can see all these episodes and exactly where the topic is spoken about when you go to the timestamps in the YouTube version of the video and go straight to this topic. So this writer writes, one, Geula is buried deep in the Golas. It's there. We need to act on it. Same as the revelation of Mashiach. Two, it's all about our Misa, our actions. If we, the plebeians, not Sadiqim, don't recognize and bring Mashiach, it will Rahman al-Islam, dot, dot, dot. And finally, one more follow-up. Was the Holocaust a punishment? The Friedrich Rebbe's daughter and son-in-law were murdered. The Rebbe's brother was murdered. I guess suggesting that it's not a punishment. And that's what I addressed last week and that topic tool on this issue. Okay. So a bunch of follow-ups. And with that, let's go to the Chassidus question. Chassidus questions on this, yesterday's Parsha, the Kutetei, the Parsha's Emir. 
the Maimer Vehenif. So there's there that Alta Deb explains, and here's the question, and I'll explain in a moment. According to this week's Lakuta Teda, Emir, why does the Teda in Pashas Vayikra still call sheep, Ksovim, Shin before a base, after Yaakov's Aveda of Hifri des Ksovim? Okay, that's the question. So let's first explain what the Alta Rebbe says. The Alta Rebbe is speaking about Vehenefesa Emir, which is to raise, to elevate the Emir offering, the wave offering. And speaks about that, it speaks that Allah Kfosim, and the expression is Kfosim, which is usually the way you speak about sheep. Kfosim is called sheep. Keves, Chof, Beis, Shin. The Alta Rebbe, however, points out that in some places it says, starting from Yaakov, the Hifrid es Haksovim, the Shin, not Keves, but Kesev. The Shin comes before the Beis. And he explains because there's two ways to do this. There's one more lamata where the shin comes before the base. Yaakov, from the highest levels, was mamshik from the shin, the midas that are higher than seichel, into the base, into bina, and into, into the midas that are lower than seichel. And by doing that, he gave us the power to turn to, to, to keves. When you go mamatlamata with the base, the midas lower than seichel, elevate them to the higher level of the midas that are higher than seichel. That's in brief what he says in Lukutetera and Emmet. Both the Maimer and the beer on the Maimer in Vahenif. I'll give you exact pages so you can look it up. That is uh, on uh, the Maimer is called Vahenif Akayan Esam. Lamed Zayan Omer Aleph is the initial Maimer where he begins discussing this topic, is to give you exactly. Is on page Lamed Zayan Omer Bez, he talks about it, Siv Bez. And then there's a beard on this Maimer where he discusses it again. At the bottom of page Lamed Ches Amadalad, Sif Hey. By the Ksavim, Hifrid Yankivan speaks about, but he says, almost every place in Tayra, Kevis is the base before the Shin, except these few places. So the questioner is asking, since Yaakov Avinu did this initially and after he's Mamshechit, from then on says Kfosim, with a base before the Shin, why then do we find in Vayikra, which is after Yaakov, and I'll give you the exact places in Vayikra, in Vayikra 110, 37, 435, 56, 723, and in our Pasha itself, in Emmer, 2219 and 2227, where it says clearly, Keves, so if one thing you could say Yaakov, that's where that's where he's still drawing, drawing it down. So it's Kesev, Shin before the base. But afterwards, it should only be base before the Shin. That's what this fellow is asking. So let me say a few things on that to answer this question. First of all, if you looked in the Kutateta, I'm not sure if you saw it, you'll see at the bottom, Lamates Ahmed Beis, at the bottom, he speaks, he says, Yes, Remez, that when you main when you elevate the keves, as I said, from the low, from the bottom up to the sharshe of chagas arich, midas higher than seichel, that's called kesev. There, there's no yunika for chitzenim. That's the power, because there's no yunika. There's no possibility for the negative energy to take advantage. So that, he says, "Yeshleim remez In the pasuk in Emir, it says, "Sheir a kesev." So you see that the idea of kesev exists even after. Yaakov did this job. And that's a hint that we can elevate the Kevis even to Kesev even afterwards. 
That's why it says Kesef. So that's one point to be made. You can look it up there. More, another point, there's an interesting sikha, fascinating sikha, in Lukut HaSikha's Chelek Tezvov, page 75, Lech Lecha Sikha. I believe it's the second Lech Lecha Sikha. And he asked the question, why is it relevant to us what happened by the Ovis? Avram, Yitzhak, Yankovim, before Matan Teir. It happened. So it's like a Maisa Ovis similar bonim. We get strength from that. But why is it negate there a Veda after Matan Teir when it's such a different situation, Matan Teir, the Bitla Hagzeda, and many other changes? And he says, no, because even Teda's Nitzchis and even the Aveda that happened before Matan Teda exists also in, after Matan Teda itself. We also have Bedakas subtly both levels, the before Matan Teda and the after, like person before they learn Teda and after they learn Teda. Therefore, you could apply the same thing. The idea that Yaakov, Hifri Desaksovim, with the Shin before the Beis, is not just something Yaakov did and after that, no more, we don't have that. We have the Ovis within each one of us, and we have that Aveda Mamayla Lamata also now. And then we have the primary Aveda Mamata Lamayla of Kvasim, the base before the Shin. So that's an answer. These are the two points I would make in answering your question. Okay, thank you for that. Let us go now to the essays. The three essays we're doing today this week are one English, two Hebrew. The first one is Retroactive Healing. It's in our DNA, Nechamedina Zwiebel. Age 45, Kingston, Pennsylvania. Very nice essay written where she talks about contemporary issue challenges and healing in all relationships. Been there, done that. I wish I could go back to before that happened. If I only could do it all over again. This is wishful thinking, but not really reality. Or is it? Is it really possible for something that happened already to be retracted as if it never happened? And goes on to discuss it from the context of logotherapy, Dr. Frankel who the Rebbe cites in uh, some letters and many places, a number of places, I should say, and then goes back to compare it to what Chassidus teaches and calls it, it's our DNA, DNA is being Chassidus principles derived from the first retroactive healing and provide the DNA strategy using Chassidus tools to regret, so regret and even traumatic effects can now be totally erased and, re- and reversed. And uses DNA as D, D being destiny, Hashem is above time and space, N has never happened, affects R as if it didn't happen, and goes through the details of what Shuvah does. And A is acknowledgement. Nasa Kaidun Lunishma. And the applications of this DNA strategy to dealing with past experiences in ways that we get beyond them and actually transform them. So this is the Nakuda. Destiny never happened, acknowledgement. Then in the, that's in the principle supporting the phenomenon. Parable, disengage, neutralize, and administer. Disengage, neutralize, and administer in the strategy as well. So it's an essay. This is posted. You can see it at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. This essay and the other essays as they're posted each week. That is essay number one. You could also receive these essays as they're updated by joining our email list, which offers different weekly thoughts and other materials that will definitely be helpful to you and complement a lot of that which is discussed here. Next essay. Is man superior to the beast? Chani Tzaitlin. Age 34, Israel. Hamesra Adam in What she does is goes through the Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, of human needs, and comes to explain what Chassidus and, and Yiddishkeit teaches on this matter. Very well done essay, and I think a great contribution to this discussion, and does it in a very comprehensive way. The first, first obviously, from a point of view of secular psychology, and moving all the way up 
to self-actualization in Maslow's pyramid, his hierarchy, and then introducing the concepts of chassidus, how neshama, nefesh, ruach, and the meyach and lev, and all the different elements of the keiches and nefesh, and the levels in the soul, are all part of going even beyond where Maslow ends in our search for our deepest, fulfilling our deepest purpose, and the most spiritual and transcendent parts of our lives. And that's ultimately what makes us superior to the animal. Good. Not just our intelligence. And finally, essay number three is the Hasidic perspective on the well-being of the elderly. Duror Yahav, age 36, Ramad Gan, Israel. Erech Mishnah Karvelecha. An editor or a publisher, or an editor or author of a book, uh, a series called Karvelecha. So this again, a well, very well done talks about some of the challenges that the elderly deal with, their, their well-being, um, in their own individual self-worth, um, in their spiritual growth, in the purpose of their lives, the power of even one mitzvah, their ability to help others. So a series of challenges and how, unfortunately, are not usually dealt with in the most best way possible and how Teda Chassidus teaches us methods that can actually help the elderly grow and develop their skills. And of course, a big theme that the Rebbe spoke about when he spoke about against retirement, spoke about how we have to provide for the elderly, especially today, with um, the growing rate of more elderly due to medical advances, and as well as the baby boomers coming of age. So this essay is another great contribution to that. And I should say, all the essays I've been reading and have read are, my opinion, contributions that are not just contributions for those that love Chassidus, but can actually be tremendously helpful for the modalities and for different methodologies that are out there. And I wish we can get them out more. And please share them with others and anyone you see fit. If you go to a therapist or you speak to a psychologist or you have friends, this is a good way of integrating the two, showing the chassidus. And chassidus is a way of life, a way of meaningful life and a way of applying it to our personal lives and making us healthier human beings emotionally, psychologically, spiritually and the fulfillment of the purpose of our existence which is what God gave us life fulfilling, as I said before, the blueprint Teda and the connections that mitzvahs connect us to our soul and ultimately to our purpose of the divine purpose in this world. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied Episode 212. Again, we depend on your contributions and generous donations. Please support us going to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. And this has been, been episode 212. Everyone have a very blessed continuing of the month of year as we prepare and count down to Shavuos with the Sefirah Se'emer. And we go to My Omer, our Omer app, which is an excellent way of going through these days, including the refinement of our personalities, Birur Hamidus. And until next week, everyone should have a blessed week. Be well.